Well, good morning, Hope Church. It's a privilege to be able to speak into your Spirit-filled church series, and we're reading out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So if you've got a Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But before I read from that chapter, let me just start by saying this. The person who claims to know God makes a huge claim. Isn't that just a massive statement? I know God. What about saying, I know God and this is who he is. This is his name. That is also, is it not, a huge thing to say. But the Christian then goes even further For the Christian says, not only do I know God, not only do I know who he is, the person of Jesus Christ, but this God lives in me. I am filled with his spirit. Now that's a massive thing to say. For you as a church, for us as a church, to say we are filled with the spirit of God. We are the people of God. It's hard to think of anything that is bigger to say as a statement of reality than that. Now, if you're talking to someone who's agnostic, they haven't decided yet whether or not uh, they believe in God. They are still, if you like, searching the evidence, weighing up the evidence, living their lives um, ambivalent to whether or not there is a God. If they come into contact with you, maybe you are agnostic watching this today. Uh, Surely the question to someone who is that sure that they know God and indeed that God is living in them is, well, how do you know? Show me some proof. What's the evidence? What's so special about you? Would be fair questions to ask. And as Christians, actually, we're called to bear witness to what we believe. Jesus in Acts chapter 1 says to his disciples, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. So if you're a Christian and you call Jesus your saviour, he calls you his witness. You are his witness. So when your agnostic friend says to you, why are you so certain of God and how can you be so sure that Jesus is God? How do you know the spirit of God lives within you? What what do you do at that point to bear witness? What do you draw attention to? Now, the, the church that we're thinking about in the Bible here, the church in Corinth, was pointing to spiritual gifts as an evidence of the authenticity of God's work among them. If you were to ask the average Joe member of the church in Corinth, how do you know God's with you? How do you know you're a spirit-filled church? They probably at that point would have just start speaking all kinds of random odd languages, angelic languages, and say, look, isn't this amazing? Or maybe started to prophesy. For that church had seen the spiritual gifts as really being their distinguishing feature, substantiating their claim for authenticity, for being a spirit-filled church. Now, is that the the claim, the thing to point to? Well, Paul 
gives us a very important instruction here in 1 Corinthians 13. Very important. And it's not insignificant that this chapter is right in the middle of the two either side of it dealing with spiritual gifts, which Paul's all for, as we were hearing last week from John. He's all for the spiritual gifts. But he wants the church in Corinth to see something that's even greater, that's even more wonderful. That's an even truer evidence that the Spirit of God is with them and working through them. Let's read 1 Corinthians 13 together. And this is the CSB version. Verse 1. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. It's pretty clear from this passage what the Apostle Paul saw as the great evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in the life of a Christian and in the church. Love. Love is what it's all about. Now we're going to look at three things uh, that are clear from this passage that we can learn from. The first is this. You've got to have love before you can do love. You've got to receive it before you can give it. So the first is have love. The second is do love. So having received it, you've then got to give it. This love that Paul's talking about is a love you receive, but it's a love that you then give. So you have love and you do love. And then the third point is this. You have and you do love forever as a Christian. To be loved 
and to love is our eternal forever after reality. So we're just going to look at those three things together. He says in the first few verses this phrase, if you do not have love, if I have the gift of prophecy and I have faith, but I do not have love, then what's the point? If you're able to prophesy and speak in tongues, that's amazing. But if you're not operating out of love, you're like a clanging gong. It's like someone's got a gong next to your ear and they're just banging it. It's annoying. But if you have love, all of these things take on true meaning and find real purpose. The Christian is defined by this. They have received love. They've received the love of God. 1 John 4 verse 19 says this. We love because he first loved us. What does it mean to be a Christian? You might wonder. Is a Christian not somebody who sticks to certain rules and lives in a certain way? Well, let me tell you, this is what a a Christian is about and a spirit-filled person is about. So it says in Romans 5, God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, before any kind of Christian ethic or Christian morality or Christian behaviour, before all of those giving things, we have to understand there is a very important receiving that takes place. And it's the receiving of the Holy Spirit. And upon receiving God himself, the Holy Spirit, it says here, we receive love. The love of God is poured into us. That the moment you receive Christ, the moment of salvation, the moment of faith, is a moment where you're, as it were, baptised into the love of God. It's like the... I think of it as the big bear hug of God's love. When I pick up my child um, and squeeze them hard and tell them how much I love them, it's like I'm, I, I want them to feel it. I, I don't just want them to hear it. I want this to be something they feel and know that they are loved. It doesn't matter how good we are. It doesn't matter how generous we are, how charitable we are. It doesn't matter how miraculous our works are. If you don't have love, you've missed it altogether. The Christian is the person who has received the love of God. That's what it really means to be a Christian. It means that Jesus Christ has poured his spirit upon you, has baptised you into the love of God. We can often doubt as Christians, does God really love me? Am I really secure in my salvation? We are prone to doubts because we do still sin, we still mess up and we still don't behave in a way we think we ought to or like how Jesus would live and, and we can very easily listen to the lie of the evil one who speaks just awful dishonest 
things into our ear and says, you're not a son of God. You're not a daughter of God. You're not a child of God. A child of God wouldn't do that kind of thing. God doesn't really love you. Charles Spurgeon, who was the great preacher in the 19th century, has a brilliant example of how to deal with these types of doubts when they happen. He speaks of a a woman in his church and uh, he says this, I once knew a good woman who is the subject of many doubts. And when I got to the bottom of her doubt, it was this. She knew she loved Christ, but she was afraid that he did not love her. Oh, I said, that is a doubt that will never trouble me. Never by any possibility, because I am sure of this, that the heart is so corrupt naturally that love to God never did get there without God's putting it there. You may rest quite certain that if you love God, it is a fruit and not a root. If you love God, it is a fruit and not a root. Isn't that so encouraging? Spurgeon is saying this, don't ever doubt God's love for you. Don't doubt it. If you, when you think of the person of Jesus Christ, if you think of Jesus, the way he lived, the way he engaged with people, as you think of him crucified and resurrected, and as you think of him, as you fix your eyes, as it were, upon him, do you love him? Do you cherish him? Do you want to give your life to him? And then Spurgeon would say to you, then be encouraged, because those desires, they come to you from God and are a sign and evidence that you have received his love. Love for God is a consequence of our faith. It's not a cause. We don't stir up love for God and then somehow hope that he will forgive us. It doesn't work like that. We love because he first loved us. We're able to love Jesus. We're able to worship because it's the love that's been poured into our hearts. It's a wonderfully releasing and freeing reality of the gospel. And I'd go so far as to say this, that the kind of love that Paul's describing here, this self-giving love that we're going to come on to, is impossible to do if you haven't firstly received it. That it's impossible to love in this kind of self-denying way if you haven't yourself been loved in such a fashion. But having received this love and having encountered it through Jesus Christ and having had this love poured out into your heart by the Holy Spirit, you will then love others. It's an inevitability. It, it just will happen. This is a love that flows through us. It's a love that has great far-reaching consequences. It's a love you can know today as you look to Jesus. So we must have love first. Secondly, we must do love. So in verses four to seven, Paul continues to speak of love in action terms, in doing terms. In fact, he personifies love. He says, love is patient. Love is kind, does not envy. Love finds no joy in righteousness, 
rejoices in truth, it bears all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. Love, once it's received, must be given. Love, once it has been tasted and enjoyed, must be shared with others. This, this is what the love of God is like. It's a love that moves. It's a love that is dynamic. It's a love that is shared. It's not a love that's held tightly. It's a love that must flow through like a river, as it were, that's come from heaven and flows through us. We become like vessels or uh, streams through which this river, this life of God flows. The spirit-filled person is a person filled with the love of God and it flows through them. This love flows into the church of Jesus Christ and it flows out into the world around us in visible, demonstrable actions. And it is a love that is utterly like Jesus because God is love. Love isn't simply something that is felt. In fact, it's not even simply something that is done Love is a person. So when Paul personifies love here, he's thinking of Jesus Christ. I mean, surely he has in mind Jesus and the spectacular way in which the love of God is seen. Yes, in his ministry, in how he, he is with people, but most emphatically in the cross. You see, love like this came from heaven to earth. It's a love that came and laid a hand on leprous skin and embraced as a brother, one who was despised and feared within his community. This is the kind of love that came from heaven and says to the prostitute, come and have a seat at the table. Come and be with us. This is a love that extends friendship to a man climbing up a tree who is hated by the world. This is a love that says, I'm going to eat in your home. I mean, isn't Jesus just a stunning person as he lives and models this love? But think of the cross and think of Jesus as he's crucified. That In verse 4, where it says love is patient, a better word or a better phrase to use than patient is long-suffering. In fact, some of the older English translations say that love is long-suffering or love suffers long. And when you think of Jesus Christ upon the cross and you think of his agonies and you think of him crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have a picture of love suffering long. Why is it that the Christian says to believe in Jesus is to be saved from hell and brought into everlasting life? Why can we say that so confidently? We can say it because Jesus suffered your hell on the cross. He took hell from you. He endured your hell in his suffering upon the cross. He suffered. His love for you suffered long upon the cross. You think when Paul says that love does not keep a record of wrongs, we have in mind Jesus, who as he's being nailed to the cross by the Roman guards, prayed, Father, 
forgive them. They know not what they are doing. That's what love that keeps no record of wrongs looks like. Do you know he's a God who forgives? Jesus loves you and forgives you. He forgives you. He forgave the soldiers nailing him to the cross. Can he not forgive you and me? It's a love that hopes all things. And we think of Jesus who turned to the thief beside him and said these words, Truly I tell you, today you will join me in paradise. Wow, what a hope. What a hope for that thief as he died upon the cross next to Jesus when he hears love spoken in his ears. The promise of paradise, of everlasting life. It says that love endures all things. And we think of our Lord Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame. Jesus endured agony that we will never understand or comprehend. The brutal physical suffering of the cross was extreme. But Jesus knew the hatred and the darkness and the evil of the world poured upon him, that he fought through that. So that in those final moments, he was able to say, it is finished. It is finished. There's nothing more that is required for you and for me to know the love of God than what he did on the cross. This is how we know love, that he gave his life for his friends. And do you know that is the great, greatest manifestation, the greatest proof, the greatest witness to the love of God is the person of Jesus Christ crucified for us and for you. It's the first most extravagant measure of the love of God, that nothing you've done or will ever do will you be punished for because he did that for you. And it's true to say that as he hung on the cross, he has you in mind and me in mind when it says the joy set before him he endured the cross do you know he is anticipating his people redeemed and forgiven as a consequence of what he's done he's he has in mind people tuning in online watching sermons coming under a conviction of power as the Spirit of God moves in their hearts. He has in mind people who've maybe never entered into a church until this point, hearing about what Jesus did on the cross and realising this is the message for me. And this Christianity and this Jesus, these this name that I've heard of, suddenly this name is a sweet sound to my a sweet sound to my ears, as it's the sound of my salvation. Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. 
and there is much rejoicing because of what he has done. There is no happier person in the universe than Jesus Christ. There is no happier person than the one seated at the right hand of God the Father, who knows he's achieved everything needed for the salvation of the world. And right now, our world is full of conflict and pain. Right now, our world is full of division and suffering and hatred and racism. Right now, our world is a world of warring. But within a, a, a world like this, a world that is in such pain and is groaning, is a people full of hope and a people with a message. And this hope and this message comes from having received the Holy Spirit and the love of God. That's you and me. And we say to this world, and we're inviting this world to look to Jesus and to put your faith and your trust and your confidence in him for your life and for your future. We're grateful for our politicians and we're grateful for our leaders, but we're not looking to them to see this world perfected. They don't have a chance of achieving that. But this book and this gospel and this precious Holy Spirit who we have received will bring about complete restoration and perfection in this world. It's going to happen. Love is something that we do. What does it mean for you to imitate this love and to love like this in your place of work when you're on another Zoom call? I think of many who are parenting kids at home and it's long days and it's like Groundhog Day and every day you're kind of having to go through the motions again. You care about your child's education, you feel inadequate for the task and you can become quite overwhelmed. What does it mean for you to step out and endure as Jesus did to, to love your child in that moment? What does it mean for you as you are maybe on your own right now, feeling cut off and very isolated? Jesus would want you to know his love today. We'd want you to receive it today. We'd want you to receive the Holy Spirit today, to baptise you into the love of God today, that you might do and, and be loving, knowing how loved you are. And so finally, in the final few verses, we, we read this. Verse 8 says, love never ends. Love never ends. As for prophecy and speaking in tongues, these things are temporal. They will come to an end. And it's important to note that Paul isn't against tongues and prophecy in this chapter. Of course not. He says, I, I want you to eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. They are wonderful for us. They are gifts. But they are here to help us to do our Christian life in this fallen world. But when Jesus returns, it says here, when the perfection comes, when the perfect comes, we won't require people like me preaching. We won't require the gifts of prophecy and tongues. Why not? Well, it says here, because then we will be face to face. We will have perfect 
unspoiled, unblemished revelation of Jesus Christ and his glory. We enter into it together, one people, united, people from every nation, tribe and tongue, before him in glory, declaring his wonderful name. That's what we look forward to. That's what we anticipate. There's so much about what walking on a new earth will be like. That's a mystery to us. I mean, I often wonder... What would it be like to to know no pain at all, to never cry, to enjoy the perfect kind of heavenly banquet? What would it be like to sit with my brothers and sisters from around the world, knowing that the reason we're here is because Jesus has brought us into his family? That's what we have in our future. Do you know that? Love endures forever. Love is eternal. And you and I get the invitation to participate in this love of God. He created this universe as an overflow of his love, that it might be enjoyed and shared and experienced by countless millions of people You and I get to have a foretaste today of what we will know eternally. The love of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we bear witness to that love. And how we live our lives and how we talk in this world of hatred and of racism and of intolerance. How we engage with people who are cast off by society, how we, as it were, go to the lepers and the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners, how we call Zacchaeus down from the tree and say, come and eat in my house, how we model this love, how we do this love, points to the reality that we are a people who know who God is, we are a people who who know his name, and we are a people who are filled with him, a spirit-filled people a spirit-filled church prophecy and tongues are there to help us but the fuel that makes these things so wonderful is love we prophesy from love we speak in tongues from love all of these things to edify and strengthen the church in its mission to the world to come to jesus and to know who he is and to experience and encounter his love. That's our invitation today. Love never ends. Why don't we pray? Father, I want to thank you for sending your son that we might know how precious we are to you, that you love the world, that you gave your only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I thank you for sending your Holy Spirit who has, as it were, plunged us into your love, poured your love upon us. I pray, Lord, wherever we are right now, would we know your love poured into our hearts again. And Lord, we pray, Let this love that we've received be a love that we give. Let this love that we have be a love that we do. 
Let us be looking constantly for ways in which we can display the authentic work of God in our lives to this world around us. Not for our own praise, but for the glory of Jesus Christ. He deserves all the praise. Why should I gain in his reward? I can't give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Jesus, thank you. I love you. We love you. And we trust in you today. Fill us with your spirit. Amen. Amen.